Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. My co-host today uh, is a a fellow uh, former staff writer in the trenches out there in the journalism world. He has been oft published in Esquire, a writer and essayist. Um, he also has two very important podcasts, My Year with Dolly Parton, and there are a few things more important than Dolly, and also John Dutton Must Die, a Yellowstone podcast. And there's not enough Yellowstone on um, coastal liberal podcasts, so I'm thrilled to have my co-host Justin Kirkland with us today. What else do the people need to know about you before we get started? I am so excited to be here. I feel like uh, those two paired together uh, is a weird is a weird branding thing because I don't <laughs> I don't always feel like I'm the face of Yellowstone. Uh, I grew up in I grew up in East Tennessee, and most of the people that are still there will tell you that I'm certainly not the face of Yellowstone. Uh, <laughs> but I still tell people I am anyways. I think you should. And you're the first person I've had the opportunity to even say Yellowstone to on this podcast. I don't like, I don't watch it consistently because the thing is, every time I go home to Oregon, it is the only thing that is on TV. Yes. Paramount Plus just plays that show all of the time. And you go on holidays, they're like, it's the Yellowstone Marathon. And they're just playing the entire show front to back for an entire holiday. So I have seen... I don't know if it's like half of Yellowstone, but I have seen maybe a little less than half of it kind of like over and over again. So I have a very odd skeletal relationship with the show, but I'm always so happy when it's around. It's so good. (laughs) I go home, uh, like I said, I grew up in East Tennessee and I'll go home. My dad has this gigantic mustache and I'll walk in. He'll be like, just a Yellowstone's on. And I'll fall asleep on the couch and everything is fine. Because it's one of those shows that it'll go like six episodes and it's all dialogue Mm -hmm. and just like expansive landscape shots. (laughs) And then I'll wake up and someone's getting strangled. Someone's just been shot. And I'm like, what's happening? So uh, (laughs) it's it's both. uh, It's done great things for me. It's also trauma. (laughs) What what an evil exchange. Uh, The last (laughs) thing I will say on it is that I my hook into the show is being home and seeing it on TV. And Beth was doing something extremely Beth Dutton. I think it was when she was getting into like a cold tub naked with a bottle of champagne in her hand. I heard her say four things. And I looked at my sister. I was like, who is that? And she's like, oh, that's Beth. Beth is awful. I was like, Beth is my favorite character on TV. I think both podcasts end up coming from a deep love of blonde women who don't care what you think. Um... (laughs) The first yes. one, Dolly Parton, uh, grew up probably about twenty minutes from where I grew up. She's oh, always just okay. she's always been like a personal hero. Uh, she was the first interview I ever did, which is bananas, absolutely bananas. That um, is unbelievable. And then after that, the the Yellowstone, it was all it was all Beth. Like that's why you watch. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I have to I have to say between the two of them, I think Dolly's a bit more aspirational to emulate. As opposed to the, you sure. know, who doesn't love a drunken ice bath, but how often, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how often? What are the limits? Well, honestly, speaking of blondes, and to the question of who do or do not care what one thinks, please tell us the character that you have brought for us to discuss in a very seasonally appropriate movie choice today. So I have a deep, deep love of the film The Family Stone. Mm-hmm. So... We are going to welcome Meredith back without judgment. 
we will welcome her and her sister Julie into our home with open arms. We will try to behave like a civilized family might. Right, Amy? Why do you keep singling me out? Well, imagine what she had to have felt in order for her to call her sister. She's staying. You gotta give her credit for that. Yeah. As a lover of characters uh, and as a gay man, I want to be Rachel McAdams, but the mm-hmm. character that I've chosen today is actually Julie, mm-hmm. um, who is played by Claire Danes. Uh, she comes in about halfway through the movie. Uh, she's She comes into this highly, highly abrasive family, and, and she makes it work. So, yeah, I've... <laughs> Watching that movie as I've gotten older, I'm like, I, I think I see myself in her most. Now, was what was the moment that kicked over for you where, like, why does this person feel so familiar? This person is me. What is the Julie moment? Because, uh, like, she shows up. She's the... We're, the Family Stone is, is a family of un, really rather unlikable characters. And they're meeting their... It seemed like Prince of the Family. They're meeting Dermot Mulroney's girlfriend seemingly for the first time I think for the like collectively it's Sarah Jessica Parker and in a 2023 lens I was like she's neurodivergent like this character is so uncomfortable in this environment and so unresponsive to like the cues of this family but this family immediately decides like she walks in the door and they're like we hate you and so it is SJP navigating this and she desperately calls out for help to her sister and is like, you need to come be with me at Christmas with these people who hate me. And Julie shows up and the family is like, we love you. Ah, Amy, the mean sister. You got that right. <laughs> and, and you're with Thad, right? Yes, I'm Patrick, Merry Christmas. Here, let me help you. Why don't we go to the bathroom? What a great kid, huh? Perfect for Ben. Meredith, what am I doing here? You're cooking? Everything is fine now? What did you have me come for? Well, they certainly like you, don't they? So, are you the person who walks into the room and your sister's family is like, no, we like you instead? Are you that scene stealer? Yes, but the reason that I see myself in her is it's completely unearned. Okay. Because she, if you watch it, like, she makes the exact same missteps that SJP does the entire way through. Like, makes a comment. Now I feel like I'm setting myself up to sound like I'm racist. I'm not. Uh, But makes a comment about, like, the race of of the gay couple's adopted child. Like, which race will it be? It's not a comment that you drop. But, like... She just skates right out of it. This may be a personal question, but do you have a preference about the child's race? Julie. I'd like a little black baby. <laughs> Don't you already have a little black baby? Can you dig it? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I. Oh, it totally doesn't matter to us. I was just wondering. Julie? I'm just so excited about having this child at all. I'm sorry, I would sign, but I don't know the language. As I've gotten older and I've watched this movie over and over and over, all I can think is of all the rooms that I've walked into, I had absolutely no reason to be there. (laughs) I should not have been allowed in the door. (laughs) And I I just talked long enough that people were like, that's fine. He's Mm -hmm. he's nice. We like that. And it's completely (laughs) unearned, but I'm so grateful. Now, is that now the showing up in the rooms that you have no business being in? Is that as a matter of chance 
or a matter of practice. Like, I make it a point to be in places where nobody wants me there, but I'm going to show up and I'm going to make an impact anyway. Or are you like, this keeps happening to me? I think it ultimately boils down to using Apple Maps over Google Maps. Because <laughs> you, just, you just end up in the wrong place and you're like, I did my best. I don't know. But I do. I feel like throughout throughout my life, I've I've had more of a habit of not knowing when to stop talking mm. as opposed to uh, thinking about things too hard and talking myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I end up talking myself into situations. So I, it's <laughs> it's a bit of rambling that gets me in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I get so extra nervous when I'm there mm-hmm. that I just keep going. Because one of the pieces of this Claire Danes's, uh character is from moment go, like, the doors open on the bus and she falls out. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, that's me. That's <laughs> big me. Is that her? Julie. Julie. You all right, miss? Uh, yeah. Julie, you, 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 you can okay. stand. Yeah, I'm out. Wait, what is it? No, 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 it's nothing. It's for my knee. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see you No, there. no, it's my fault. It's okay. Can you bend it? Um, uh, I'm sorry. yeah. Yeah. No, it's fine. Thank you. Gosh. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, um, it's, it's great. I... There's just something strangely charming, and I've I've had friends and other people along the way that have been in, like, the SJP side of things. Yeah. And they're like, I have tried so hard, and I don't know why this isn't working. And I'm like, I don't know, just keep, just keep rambling. Something good will come out. <laughs> and, spoiler alert, 20 years down the line, at the end, it takes Sarah Jessica Parker just rambling to be accepted. So sometimes You're- I think, mm-hmm. throw it all out the window, see what happens. It's just perfect. It's not like I haven't been humiliated enough. Meredith, it's not like Oh, it's not? This isn't exactly the moment you've all been waiting for. You all hate me so much. Meredith, that's not true. Oh, I know what you see. Meredith, the... the... spoiled... crazy... racist... Bigot bitch from Bedford, right? That's what you all think? That is, that's that's what you all see when you look at me. Not not good enough for Everett. Not like all of you, she comes all the way up here to ruin our Christmas and, and then she sleeps with his brother? What? Now, I need to know, would you immediately start dating your sister's ex? In the, like in this situation, like you said, spoilers were 20 years down the line. Sarah Jessica Parker and Dermal Roney, bad fit. He sees Claire Danes and he's like, there's my manic pixie dream girl. And she, he like spends an evening with her saying interesting things and him just being agog and like just so in, in, in awe of her. And then like, the, like at the end, you can tell he's like, no, this is the one for me. And just like a real smooth glide into Sarah Jessica breaks up on Christmas Day, Christmas night. Julie's like, do you have plans on New Year's Eve with Dermot Mulroney? Where do you come down on this timeline? No, 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 no. That's I feel like there's there's a there's a line there. And that's (laughs) where she kind of like skips the tracks a little bit for me. (laughs) Like 
Mamacita, you gotta like wait just a second and like earn earn that. But I mean, you know, she goes for it. Uh, I can't can't blame a girl for it. I think I don't blame Claire Day. I don't blame Julie. Mm-hmm. I blame myself for not having that confidence. There's <laughs> no way I would do that. No, 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 no. Oh no. My bus is here. You can't go. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let me help you with this. Okay, thanks. No, no, you can't go. Everett. Please, stay, Julie. It's it's too much. I. No, it's not. It's not. This I remember when this movie came out, like the trailer comes out. It was like one of those like hotly anticipated trailers, like this cast. Wow. Diane Keaton and Rachel McAdams and Dermot Mulroney and Luke Wilson and um, obviously Claire Danes, Sarah Jessica Parker. Now, I feel like people went and saw this movie at the time and they weren't prepared for, as you said, this abrasive family because the trailer didn't sell like these are kind of shitheads and then you get there and you're watching a movie about shitheads and you're like i thought it was the griswolds so how did you see this when it first come out and what was your immediate experience of the movie i i think i saw it somewhere around like because i think it came out 2005 2004 2005 yeah i saw it when it came out on dvd and i saw it at home and i remember thinking like there was something really alluring about these prickly characters Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think we had seen for a while. Because after, not to to bring up 9-11 on the podcast, but I feel like after (laughs) 9-11... I've done it before. Here we are. The post-9-11 effects on cinema are so real. And they cannot be elided over in how, like, it was like we were sort of like, we were on the precipice of a future that was better. And then, like, homo-nationalism in the wake of 9-11 hit. And it was like, let's just go a thousand steps backward. And we just spoke on a, a previous episode with Matt Rogers about how, like, in that era, just, like, calling someone gay or saying someone was a fag for doing some, like, nominal minor infraction was completely normal. Like, this is a different environment as made remade completely by that by that incident and this kind of thrust us back in another direction because like it wasn't like the perfect nuclear family Mm -hmm. like it was like a very like bristly group of people that you weren't particularly rooting for but you found a reason to root for them Mm -hmm. kind of at this like rise of like we start seeing like more and more anti-heroes and i see this entire family is an anti-hero because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day I think what they communicate to uh, Julie and Sarah Jessica Parker, who I will apparently only refer to as Sarah Jessica Parker. (laughs) Yeah, um, of course. They're just trying to communicate, like, we know we're broken. That's why we are the way we are. And I found that to be really refreshing. Actually, you know what? Now, like, and I'm going to spring, like, a big question on you. I talk about this conversation and that cultural shift a lot in the context of horror cinema. And in that post-9-11 world, we have the we have a fertile ground for the rise of torture tourism films and the ultraviolent. This is so this is very interesting to me to consider the effect of that on something like a rom-com. Like, how was the rom-com, how was comedy affected by, and obviously it was, but by this shift? Is that something that you felt like did pervade throughout the culture of stuff that you took in, where there was kind of this, like, dark shift, like you said, the rise of the anti-hero? 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was 11 in 2001, so I feel like I was in that weird space of very much still a kid, mm-hmm. but also starting to see the world in like a more analytical, like thoughtful mm-hmm. way. Like I was picking up on the things that were happening around me. And I do feel like for that generation of films, there was a bit of the um, the unbelievability mm-hmm. stripped away from the rom-com, mm. which I feel like you just kind of like start seeing that chipped out, which is why we have so few rom-coms now. Right. And even if we have them, they're kind of like body and like mm-hmm. Amy Schumer's was one of the best ones. Train wreck. Yes. And you have this kind of like, if if I'm going to give you the fairy tale, I'm going to let you see behind the curtain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think that's really lovely. I think it was for this genre in particular, I think it was a call for us to start being a bit more honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, and why I think that the family stone is palatable, because it's honest, but it's earnest at the mm-hmm. same time. Like, as a as a gay kid growing up and knowing firmly at, like, 15, 16 years old, like, eventually I'll come out one day. Right. And growing up in a place that wasn't particularly receptive to that, watching Craig T. Nelson, like, slam his fist down on the table and say, that's enough! Like, yeah. that scene, I feel like lives in... Every, like, queer person's mind that's seen that movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's so good, because they're so awful, mm-hmm. but also so good. Mm-hmm. All right, that's enough. I'm sorry. Well, that's enough. I just think any parent would want a normal child. Oh! God damn you, okay? Civil. Don't civil me. Just for the child's sake, just to make it easier for the child. That's enough! That's enough. A, a really interesting thing about this movie, watching it now, was such the 2000s of it. Because, like, Sarah Jessica Parker is is being homophobic at that table. Like, she's asking this gay couple, like, what are you going to do about this child being, you know, raised by two gay people? Like, are you going to make sure he's, like, not gay? Because it's just, why would you want things to be harder for your child by by them being gay? And, like, just this implication that to be gay is to be a worse thing when, like, to be gay in the world is harder than to be a more normative orientation. So, like, one sees her point, but it feels like, it feels like such the epitome of like a 2000s liberal where they're like getting there and they're like, no, 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 gay is okay. But like, God, there's so much, you know, there's so many bad things that can happen to gay people. Like maybe don't ask, don't tell. This feels like a don't ask, don't tell liberal in the 2000s. And then like that conversation where Claire, like you said, Claire Danes asks that uh, this um, mixed race gay couple, like, you know, what race of child are you going to adopt? And then that's when Sarah starts probing about like the sexuality question, nature versus nurture, raising them gay. And it was like, this is nothing at this table feels like it is okay right now. Everybody feels like they're wrong until Craig T. Nelson slams on the table in this like interrogative line of questioning about them raising a gay child. And it's just like, that is enough. And then Diane Keaton does like the most redeemable thing she does the entire movie, looking at her son and being like, you are probably the most normal person at this table of assholes. And I was like, okay, this did get me crying for its very confused and fucked up politics of the 2000s when we hated the sin but we loved the sinner and that was kind of like the most correct way to express yourself 
I'm so happy you said that because the reason I wanted to come on the podcast is to spread the good word. You should love the sin, but hate the sinner. Wait, did I get that backwards? I think I got that backwards. No, it's, it was such, it was such a lovely moment because I grew up around like all of that kind of language. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, one of the reasons that I vibe with these two sisters so much because I, I, I choose Julie. Claire mm-hmm. Danes is, is who I see myself as. But I have come to sympathize so much with Sarah Jessica Parker because she walks into mm-hmm. an absolute war zone. Mm-hmm. And it's a war zone that the way that she was phrasing it, it's like you said, it's so typical early 2000s liberal approach. Because, like, my memory tells me that she was not wrong. Uh-huh. Like, she was, she was wrong. But, uh-huh. like... The way she phrased it was so normal. And I would, I think for me, if I had heard somebody say something like that and kind of pardon being gay in 2005 to me living in Tennessee, I would have been like, oh my God, ally. Whereas like (laughs) now, like you're done. But it's fascinating to see how it changes. And it's kind of a little reflection every year when I watch it that I'm, it's like, yeah, like things have changed so much. Like this was... This was not a Christmas where everybody had watched Glee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was not a Christmas where Chris uh, Colfer's, like, glad ally dad on Glee was a part of, like, the TV conversation. Well, and that's something that, like, <laughs> I, I've talked a lot about in, in the context of, of genre is, like, there's this, this fascinating, because it feels like in the late 90s, like, uh, Ellen comes out in the mid-90s, I'm gay, her career is thrown in the garbage. Like, she is waylaid, and that's kind, that's it. For a long time until her here and now, I believe it was the special here and now that she sort of comes back with on HBO. And that leads into like the Ella DeGeneres show and like she's back and she's in everybody's living room. And in the late 90s, you have this like GBF era where it's like the Will and Grace kind of gay. And that's acceptable, but it is caricature. And not that gay caricature is bad. Like I know plenty of people who would align with what would appear to be gay caricature who are the most fabulous people with the most wonderful disposition and existence in this world. Um, But then, like, it feels like there's this shift in the late 2000s where, like, when Drag Race hits and suddenly gay on TV isn't, like, Will and Grace, gay on TV is drag queen. And, like, the proliferation and normalization, thank God, of of RuPaul's Drag Race becoming an empire and, like, the whole world of Wonder Orbit becoming an empire. And that's just a part of the cultural vernacular and things that we can see on the mainstream. That would have made Sarah Jessica Parker in this movie clutch her pearls. And she, as you said, was probably an ally. I like to imagine there are extensions of universes and maybe... Claire Danes in Homeland is actually just an extension of Claire Danes. (laughs) Like, she couldn't handle it either, and it's just always on the verge of tears and a mental breakdown after it. (laughs) Like, it's just like, oh, this is too much, it's too much. (laughs) It's too much, it's too much. We're going to take a short break, but I'll be back with Justin for more about the family stone and even a little manic pixie dream girl discourse. Then I'll have one quick thing before I go about a completely topically related lesbian bodybuilder thriller starring Kristen Stewart. Last week, The Greatest Generation, the comedy podcast about old Star Trek TV shows like Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, 
just had its 500th episode. And Greatest Trek, the podcast about the new Star Trek shows like Strange New Worlds, Lower Decks, and Discovery, just had its 250th episode. So whether you have a task that's roughly 750 hours long, or you want to learn about some of the production techniques that go into making one of the greatest franchises in television history, you should give us a try either way. The Greatest Generation and Greatest Trek, the best-reviewed, most-listened-to Star Trek podcasts in the world. They're on Maximum Fun. Cameron Esposito here, comedian and host of Query. Every week I get to interview someone amazing from the LGBTQIA plus community. Some queeros. I chat with them about their lives, loves, careers, and more. I've talked to, you know, giant celebs, Trixie Mattel, Lena Waithe, Tegan, and Sarah Quinn, but also astronauts, reverends, nurses. It's funny, it gets deep, and hopefully it makes you feel like you're part of something. Join me every Monday on Maximum Fun to listen to Query with Cameron Esposito. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. My guest is writer Justin Kirkland, who grew up gay and Christian in Tennessee, and even as a teenager saw himself in Julie, the sister who shows up to smooth the rocky waters of Christmas with the family stone. Let's get back into it. You mentioned like, you know, around like 15 years old, you said like, knew you were going to come out eventually. So for, for you, in like the constraints of your like rural East Tennessee upbringing, you hit it where it was like, I know I'm gonna do this. But I have to bide my time. Is that like a conscious, not just like, I'm denying, I'm denying until the moment I'm like, yes, I am, I'm gay. But it was like, I am gay, I know it. And now I have to sit and wait until I can actually do this. I was a planner. Um, Okay. And I think one of the other reasons I was drawn to the family stone is like, we had family gatherings. And at a certain point after grandparents died, we started having them at my house. Mm. And we would have family come over and my cousin, who's about six years my senior, uh, we used to spend every summer together. He'd babysit me and my brother. And then he kind of went off the radar for a little bit. And then he showed up one Thanksgiving as Demetria, uh, which is his, uh, her drag persona. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. But I'm like, this is like 13, 14 years old, like right before Family Stone comes out. So we're talking like 2003, absolute trailblazer. And my mom pulls me aside and she's like, I'm going to need you to help me manage this with your dad. Okay. And I'm like, cool, healthy, fine, great. Yeah. But I think that's where some of that, that Julie character comes in Mm -hmm. because like I saw those moments and I'm like, she has a perfect ability of kind of being stream of consciousness and saying whatever comes to her mind while Mm -hmm. also assessing the room and assessing how to say the stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that was always what I thought about when I was thinking of coming out. Like, how do I, like, pick and choose and build my playbook so that mm-hmm. when I, like, drop this bomb, it might not be as, like, fun and bold and fabulous as showing up <laughs> to Thanksgiving and drag, but, like, it's going to cover my bases. And, of course, it didn't cover my bases because life isn't movies and I don't have the legs for drag. So, <laughs> it's, it's tragic. But, uh, yeah, I think I... I saw a lot of myself and built my playbook out of the pop culture that I watch, family yeah. included. Well, and I think that I think that gets to something like I'm I'm 37. I think we're like of the same millennial generation, at least like sort of broad bubble there. And it's 
it's so like I've I've spent a lot of time this year with uh, like college seniors and it's been so fascinating sort of seeing the difference between like I still get very just like stars in my eyes around like positive representation. I'm not so much like clinging to any representation whatsoever of like with queer representation because it's like, no, we're not in a desert so much anymore. Like I can be picky and choosy. Um, but it is just so fascinating to see the difference of like me fixating on things that happen or or like a pop star being like, I'm bisexual and being like, wow, I can't believe it. Like this is landmark. And seeing a bunch of 22 year olds be like, I don't know why we have to talk about it. It's like, damn, I mean, I know you guys are younger than me, but you're not like 50 years younger than me. Like the difference in the nonchalance, I think as a result of having options for seeing yourself in popular culture versus sort of how we grew up in earlier and and generations prior of being like, I'm going to graft my, you being like, I'm going to graft myself on a Julie from the family stone and me being like, I'm going to see myself in Jennifer's body. Like, and and having to like, (laughs) find these ways of like intense like female intimacy that's not necessarily single white female on screen and it's just like it still blows my mind that there have become as many options as there are and i wonder if i'm ever going to be able to decondition myself from that kind of scarcity mindset like i'm almost 40 and it still feels like novel kind of every time I hate when we split things into generations because I think that everything is so much more nuanced. But Mm. I completely agree with what you're saying because I think that... I think one of the, like, curses and blessings that our generation faces is, like, particularly when it comes to queer representation, you have, like, Gen X and boomers Mm -hmm. who, like, grew up without it, largely, which is why you have, like, all these icons like Judy Garland and Cher and Barbara. And that was kind of the sub in Mm -hmm. when it came to mainstream and they know how like scarce it can be. They know how you kind of have to make your own kingdom Mm -hmm. out of players that maybe not aren't even in your community. Yes. Then we have Gen Z that follows us that has all this representation. So it doesn't seem like something to, uh, I don't know, like Marvel at. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great word actually. And I think that, our generation exists in this extremely interesting place where we feel empowered mm-hmm. by the representation. We're excited always to see the representation. Like, Happiest Season came oh. out a couple years ago. Yeah. I love like, that the movie. the best. <laughs> I love that movie. Immediate addition. And partly because, like, I knew there was queer representation in there. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important to have that generation that, like, runs in the middle and can say, like, I know this is important. Mm-hmm. Because I think that there's... There's got to be a lane between, like, tragedy and idealism. Yeah. And I think that's that's where our generation lives. We're like, this is, you guys don't get it because, like, it feels amazing to have it. And I don't take away that it was hard for you. But also, yeah. you guys don't get it because, like, I know what it was like to not have it. I know what it was like to be sitting in my living room and, like, the caricature on Will and Grace was the best thing that I could watch and to immediately turn it off when I heard my dad come oh. in from work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that was actually, that's actually something I was just going to ask about, which is, like, growing up in a quite Christian environment and you having your own, like, very close walk with your faith as as a young person, could you access pop culture easily that could serve as some form of guidepost for you? Or was that a kind of, like, it's like, I grew up in a very Christian town and, like, a lot of my friends weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter because it was wizardry and 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 black magic and that was something that was off the table so were you able 
to watch or was it a lot of like turning off the TV when someone came in or having to like go to a friend's house and watch D- watch VHS tapes? To to reference uh, a line from the Family Stone from that dinner scene, I think that while people are are born as they are, queer, gay, trans, however, mm-hmm. um, my dad's taste in things definitely (laughs) influenced his window treatments if you will yeah (laughs) Um, because he's like this like burly hunter who like goes and like kills deer and loves watching like fishing but like he introduced uh, while i didn't have like overt queer examples like we weren't watching uh the original queer eye we weren't watching will and grace we weren't anytime there was a gay person on tv it was bad however Mm -hmm. like Good old Wendell was introducing me to like singing in the rain and West Side Story. <laughs> yeah. And like, and later on, like he can quote like the entire movie of burlesque. Like, God bless him, <laughs> but he has the taste of an ally. So I'm grateful that we eventually got him there. Wow. Uh, he, yeah, died in the wool of homosexual over here, absolutely. <laughs> People don't even know when they're participating in the gay agenda. They would be shocked to learn when they're participating in the gay agenda. It's it's funny. I feel like there were a lot of cultural uh, cultural touch points. We listened to all kinds of music, and even though there was uh, there were ups and downs, like that same cousin that I told you about that came to mm-hmm. Thanksgiving and drag. My dad was our chaperone to shares one, two, three. I think it was three or four farewell tours ago. <laughs> but we went and saw like Cher's farewell tour in like 2002. And it was amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I think whether he whether he meant to or not, he was a proponent. Now, to, I feel like to be Southern Christian is it's sort of. It's not only like a religion, it's a cultural identification sort of situation. And, you know, and, and with you being a person of, of difference in your surroundings, like, was the world sort of like your own little family stone around you? These ostensibly like plucky people who like are intense, but good to each other. But like, you have to wade through sort of their cruelty as kindness. Like, I feel like it's kind of like Minnesota nice, where you meet people like, were they just like, did they just invite me to their birthday or did they just insult me? It was a big, I almost feel like it's too cliche at this point, but it was a big bless your heart situation. Yeah, yeah, often. yeah. Okay, I think that's exactly what I'm thinking. I don't, I don't know. This is why we go to therapy, isn't it? I think looking <laughs> back on it, I was always grateful because like those characters, like I was outnumbered mm-hmm. and yeah. you kind of have to like assess your situation and make the best of it where mm-hmm. you can. Um so I always kind of took it as an opportunity that, like, if I'm kind of an alien who's baked into this culture, mm-hmm. like, what good can the alien do while the alien's here? Um, <laughs> so I like... Showing up in rooms that no one, that you weren't invited to. <laughs> exactly that. And I like to think I left it um, a little bit better. And I, uh, you know, kind of upended people's people's expectations because the the most important thing to me is again maybe this is why we go to therapy but when i leave a room i want to be Mm -hmm. a good thing that left that room not Mm -hmm. the bad thing um or contribute to what might have been bad there to begin with um Mm -hmm. and it's difficult but i think it's a fun challenge when did you first start noticing in your like conception of pop culture that you were starting to have maybe closer reference points that was like i'm not compromising as much anymore like this is this is starting to feel more real 
I have a real spicy take mm. when it comes to movie tropes and what I identify with. And I have always defended the manic pixie dream girl. This is great because this is like, I feel like Julie in this movie is Dermot's manic pixie dream girl. Yes, a hundred percent. And I always, I think before I knew how to fully explain it, I always heard people say, well, these people, these characters just exist for the male gaze. Mm -hmm. And like, sure. But I think it's interesting to kind of step back from there and say, why do they exist yeah. for the male gaze? And maybe I'm giving writers too much credit, but I think that you have these characters who exist not just to be like these things that float from room to room, but they mm -hmm. make the situation better. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. And yeah. there's a lot of quick thinking that goes into that. Mm -hmm. And I think... Uh, in some ways, I think that Lorelai Gilmore falls into the manic pixie dream girl. I think that obviously, like Elizabeth Town is a point of reference. You have Julie who shows up for like seemingly no reason <laughs> yeah. to be like, quote unquote, like the perfect house guest. Yeah. And I think a lot of effort goes into that. So I think those were some of my references of, of people where I'm like, oh, I feel like that's a little bit of who I am because I see the effort that goes into it. Mm hmm. And that's that takes a lot. If the male gaze is what you seek, then there's there's a lot to be said for being a character written specifically for that. I also think it's so interesting to have these characters that we don't want we don't want to sign off on the manic pixie dream girl because our her existence makes us uncomfortable. It's for the wrong person. Yeah. But I think that it makes us uncomfortable because it's not as, like, line in the sand. We do like these characters. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to, but we do like them. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, like, you can stand Lydia Tarr online all day and it's fine. Yeah. And, like, Lydia Tarr is a monster. <laughs> but, like, it's almost like because when we know that they're monsters, it's fine. But when we don't quite know what they stand for or who they're serving, mm -hmm. or if we think they're serving the wrong person, then mm -hmm. it becomes a problem. And it's like, no, 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 no. You just got to step back and look at the complexity because you can't, you can't negate a character or an actor's performance because it makes you feel a little weird. I think you got to lean into it. Yeah. And I... There's there's obviously like much reductiveness once some a character becomes like that manic pixie dream girl and it, like you know the existing for the male character to to rediscover his joy fine annoying yes that is a concept annoying but the manic pixie dream girl let's say let's take it like a Natalie Portman in Garden State she never stops being herself because she is what Zach Braff projects onto her that like she does not form to what he wants her to be, her whole deal is just being so relentlessly herself and so, like, bright in this world that the male character sort of becomes, you know, it, it, they're so compelling that the male character is given a reason anew to, like, live and discover in this world. And, like, if these girls out here are truly just, like, it, it, like what I mentioned before about having stereotypically gay male characteristics be, like, the, you know, the word of a trope, being immediately attached to a pejorative, when a lot of people just 
naturally have like that flamboyantness, like perhaps that pitch of voice that you're thinking, perhaps that swishiness that you're thinking of, perhaps that outlandishness that you're thinking of that would go into the quote unquote trope of a gay male character that actually does represent a cross section of the gay male experience. And the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I've met some of those too. And like (laughs) the fact that they adhere to a trope of fiction does not mean they themselves in real life are cultivating their, their own personalities for the male gaze. It is just like they've overlapped with an abused, it seemed like fictional device to suddenly become representative of something we should think is bad when it's like, yeah, but that's just throwing out the baby with the bathwater is just as bad as reducing a woman or a man down to like their trope characteristics and calling them calling them done for the day. Yeah. And you get I think about these characters as well. And like the kind of perfect storm that they have to be in to exist. Mm-hmm. Because, like, imagine throwing Natalie Portman's character in Garden State into the Family Stone. <laughs> it's not going to work. Like, yeah, it's true. And you have these, like, flamboyant, like, queer tropes. Sure. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can't throw those everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... It's so it's so specific to the environment that they're in, and I mean you know there's always there's always good criticism uh, against those characters. I just think it's it's too easy to write things off. It's mm-hmm. too easy to uh, to count to count those characters out and say like eh, they don't really represent anything. When it's like I don't know, like maybe there's a deeper conversation to have there. Yeah, and and, and it's not. I feel like it, it certainly couldn't be applied in every case, but what in a in a landscape that lacks nuanced and diverse representation there is something to having somebody be a giant flashing road sign for a thing when people who don't even know they're looking see that thing it's a real guidepost of sort of where to go of like hey maybe come over here a little closer like you might find something that feels familiar to to you and that can be really helpful a hundred percent i i think that's why because the first tv show that really kind of enveloped me was Gilmore Girls. Mm. And there is this, like, intensity there that kind of pulls you in. And I remember uh, my dad hating that show because of how quickly they spoke and, like, the number of references. But there was something that just, like, clicked in my brain where I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's that's my tribe. Like, those are my <laughs> yeah. people. People talking uh, through it. Talking through it. Exactly. You just you just keep is like I was saying with the family stone, you just talk and talk and talk until the right thing comes out. And then you get quiet, but you don't stop until the right thing comes out. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and that's no one could accuse an Amy Sherman Palladino show of of subtly relaying its characters. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah, it's like is is Amy Sherman Palladino is she like the Aaron Sorkin of of like erudite like precocious girls like <laughs> just Justice like for bonheads yeah just like all that all that dialogue and emotional processing like 15 pounds of talking squeezed into like a five pound vessel it's so good because i think those like fast talking characters uh whether it's whether it's Gilmore Girls, I was also I'm also still strangely enough me and like six other people still watching Grey's Anatomy. Like Grey's Anatomy <laughs> has elements of that. The Family Stone and the way they jab each other have so much of that. But I think when you have these characters that speak too much, mm-hmm. uh, when you have people like myself that speak too much, mm-hmm. I think that it's. 
it's a preach. It's we birds of a feather find each other. I think that's how the saying goes. Um, but I think when you have those people, it almost takes an onus off of other people mm. because you know that they're just going to keep saying things until like it resonates with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I feel like a now I do feel like I'm talking to. <laughs> no, I I'm sitting here thinking about how 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 fortunate we are to exist in the thriving age of podcasts in which folks like me and you just have really the perfect medium to be ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, instead of my biggest fear, which is somebody just telling me to stop talking in person, mm-hmm. people can just hit pause or skip whenever they want. And oh, yeah. as long as you get to the first ad break, you do what you want, you know? <laughs> well i i as we come toward the end like i you know a a lot of your writing that you've done is 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 personal essay work and so when did it become important for you in your experience of of moving through the world to write these things through and to share your experience through prose or maybe to understand it yourself or help the world better understand you like when did that become sort of something elemental to you to stay on theme, I'm going to do this in, like, three parts. The first part's going to be super earnest and sweet. The second part's going to be super cringy, and then we're going back to earnest. <laughs> my uh, my mama died when I was five, and I, I loved her. We watched Guiding Light together. <laughs> Every day after school, she would save half her biscuit and gravy and give it to me so Ooh. that I wouldn't talk through Guiding Light. <laughs> it was amazing. We It was a symbiotic relationship. Um and and she passed away and i remember like not knowing what to do with that as like a 5 6 year old and my aunt wrote a poem and i remember like i read it at an early age i remember reading that poem and thinking like i want to do that mm-hmm. and i cobbled together this like awful awful poem about <laughs> my my mama and i presented it and i remember seeing the way that it made other people feel um and i think that ended up being a core memory for me Mm. that I was like, oh, if I say the right thing, I can help people feel better. Mm. Um, And then my, my philosophy about writing about my life is 2008 MySpace. Oh, wow. Um, I followed Taylor Swift uh, (laughs) when she had just like self-titled out. Mm -hmm. Um, It might've even been like 2007 and she had, a quote and it had like squiggle asterisk squiggle. Um, I haven't experienced anything that hasn't happened to somebody else or something to that mm. effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, squiggle asterisk squiggle after. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that resonating with me so hard because I'm like, why do I want to be ashamed of what I've lived? Because mm. like, I've certainly not been the first one to live it. Right. Yeah. Um, So for me, I feel like there are people in the world that someone I think in our time is going to figure out some kind of like, just going with the cliche, like some kind of cure treatment for cancer. And like, thank God, you know, there, there's uh, unfortunately going to be a millennial president and (laughs) it's, it's giving terrifying. Um, (laughs) And I think for people like ourselves that like to talk and talk about ourselves, Mm -hmm. we owe it to each other to talk about all of our experiences because there's somebody out there that so desperately wants to and can't because Mm -hmm. it gets stuck right here. So like if I go into a room and like fall off the bus on my knees and like scrape it up and then get (laughs) taken to some like picturesque new England home with 
essentially like social terrorists <laughs> and and I'm the one that can like be a little bit of a salve there. Yeah. Then great, because I could have used some salves along the way. Um mm-hmm. I let let me be that weird person and be a little cringy so that you don't have to be. I do want to add before we yes. hop off here, as much as I identify with Julie, mm-hmm. the fact that she tried her sister's engagement uh, ring Julie. on is insane. Yeah, and she knew it wasn't like there was a naive, like, what? I don't understand. She is like, no, no, that's, you can't. Isn't that bad luck? She's like, sh- and then just, oh, shoving it on her finger. And she's like, I can't do this. What's <laughs> happening? It's like, girl, you just did. <laughs> This, you just yeah, did. So. This, this didn't. This was an active involvement from you. So good. Okay, I'm glad that like Julie. Julie does need to be taken to task on that one because that was that was pretty messed up. Draw a line somewhere, you know. Respect yourself. <laughs> like you said of the the cold bath. Like okay, but how often? <laughs> Draw a line. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on today and bringing this just challenging text and and taking the time during this uh, this season of cheer. I, we really appreciate you being here. Scorsese's got to have something to live up to, so I'm glad that we get to uh, highlight this. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been so much fun. Thank you so much to Justin Kirkland for coming on and giving us another holiday episode. We weren't even requesting thematically appropriate choices for the season, you guys. Guests have just really showed out and uh, helped us keep this on message all month long. Justin is one of the heroes still out there being a delightful Twitter follow. So if you, like me, are hanging on, uh, give him a follow. We will put a link to that in the show notes and you can keep up with his bylines there. And of course, you can listen to John Dutton Must Die and My Year with Dolly wherever you find your podcasts. Yellowstone is coming to an end, so I think you should follow uh, you should follow them into the conclusion. And now it is that one quick thing before I go. Huge news, guys. Huge news. Uh, this week, A24 released the first trailer for Love Lies Bleeding, the aforementioned Kristen Stewart bodybuilder lesbian thriller. It stars Kristen Stewart and Katie O'Brien, who plays the previously discussed bodybuilding character, and be gay do crimes. Like, movie has Ed Harris in ZZ Top long hair, but but still, as Ed Harris is bald on top, so it is absolutely crazy to see. The brief, the briefest of possible synopses is on IMDb. It says a romance fueled by ego, desire, and the American dream. That really gives us nothing. But it seems like Kristen Stewart and Katie O'Brien come into one another's lives uh, where Kristen Stewart in a very Joan Jett um, era in her career mullet from when she was playing that character. uh, Kristen Stewart mulleted out it seems to already be involved, at least tangentially, in a life of crime that involves ZZ Top long hair, bald on top, Ed Harris as the top of that crime heap. We also have Dave Franco with a little mustache. Seems sleazy. Cool. And when Kristen Stewart and Katie O'Brien meet, she seems to bring Katie O'Brien into the fold of this criminal enterprise. Obviously, bad things ensue from there. There is double crossing. There is um, 
raising the ire of Ed Harris and he comes after one or both of them. I would imagine it's both. There are guns. There is sex featuring Kristen Stewart and Katie O'Brien, canonically queer. We already love it. And another exciting detail of this movie is that it is from uh, St. Maud director Rose Glass, who co-wrote this screenplay with Veronica Tufilska. So this is, again, an A24 picture. Uh, we trust their curation, as we have learned to do so over the years. As ever, I am excited to see them in the genre space some more. I really love in the past few years how their brand has become so aligned with horror movies and thrillers. That is right in my wheelhouse. Um, so this can only be good for me. The poster, as you will understand, is very important to me, is big red bold text that says love lies bleeding with a gorgeous sort of like almost fitness model body shot of Katie O'Brien. Uh, featuring her muscles that are shiny. She's wearing a bikini and she's holding a gun. So catnip for me. Here I am. I do not know when Love Lies Bleeding will be coming out, coming soon. But you can bet in at least a tiny little brief update, you will be hearing more about it on this podcast. So Rose Glass of St. Maud fame, Kristen Stewart of great acting and gay fame, and Katie O'Brien who is looking like she could deliver some sort of breakout performance in this. Uh, also, the trailer is fueled by 80s like haircuts and music, so there's something for truly everyone here uh, coming, in, coming in 2024. And that is our show. Uh, the last show of the year, in fact. Remember that you can get your own Feeling Scene merch, including all kinds of canonically queer shirts, thematically appropriate, at maxfunstore.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorcrew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.